most peaceful place in the universe, according to the Doctor. Mind you, considering some of the Doctor's ideas about peaceful places. <laughs> Just don't let him talk you into a trip to Metabilis 3, the famous blue planet of the Acteon galaxy. Why not? What's there? <laughs> Nothing you'd want to run into on a dark night. I could lie back here for hours, just soaking up the peace and quiet. <laughs> we both could, if the Doctor hadn't left us with a job to do. Now he's swanned off to take the TARDIS on a test run. Well, he had to sort out the TARDIS, after all she's been through. <laughs> he just wanted to get out of doing the report. It's the Time Lords, you see. They insist on a full report on our recent adventure for their files. Fussy bunch of old bureaucrats. Just the attitude that made me leave them in the first place. And I really can't spare the time. I've got to do a test run to check out those instrument recalibrations on the TARDIS. Our little jaunt put the poor old girl under quite a strain. So if you two could be getting on with the report, just press the button, talk into the little black box here and say what happened. Everything that was said and done. All the detail you can remember. I'll polish it up when I get back. And we fell for it. Oh, come on, Jason. It's not that hard. All we've got to do is tell what happened. It's not the sort of thing you forget easily, is it? I'll say. Every terrifying detail is branded on my memory. Right then. Let's get on with it. You start. <clears throat> well. It started after we'd escaped from the Daleks. And the Cybermen, and the murderous mercenaries. And we'd gone back to London and foiled the Daleks' plan to blow up the peace conference. Afterwards, the Doctor brought us for some rest and relaxation. I think he needed to restore his nerves after dealing with Mrs. T. He told me once he could cope with the Daleks and Cybermen, <coughs> but that woman terrified him. When we arrived, he got this communication. What is it, Doctor? It's from Carl. Carl, the mercenary leader. The one who tricked us and betrayed us to the Daleks. That Carl. That's the one. Oh, how nice to hear from him. So, what's the message? He wants us to attend the funeral of Madame Delilah at the Bar Galactica. He said it was Madame Delilah's dying wish. I reminded the Doctor about the first time we went to Bar Galactica. We nearly got slaughtered by a gang of murderous mercenaries. And anyway, I didn't know how we could have trusted Carl. It had to be some kind of trap. The Doctor said there's a lot of good in Carl, if only you can find it. Let someone else go, I said to him. Once a mercenary, always a mercenary. All Carl thinks of is turning a profit any way he can. Remember the mercenary's motto? Business is business? But I could see that the Doctor really wanted to go. Madame Delina meant a lot to him. After all, she did save his life when the Dalek Patrol raided Bar Galactica. That's when Carl changed sides. And changed right back again when the Daleks caught him. Well, yes. Anyway, we agreed to go. And what a mistake that was. Trouble started the moment we arrived, remember? The Doctor landed the TARDIS in a ragged clump of trees close to the bar. There it was the same old ramshackle pile of rickety buildings. In the distance, we could hear the mercenaries shouting and singing. It didn't sound much like a funeral. Right, let's go in and see, shall we? Are you sure, Doctor? It doesn't sound very welcoming. Oh, nonsense. We're expected. 
We're honoured guests. So we walked across the rocky plateau and went up to the big double doors. I noticed a pile of broken chairs and tables to one side, presumably the debris from the latest barroom brawl. The doctor flung open the doors and we went inside. To be greeted by a sudden sinister silence. Inside it was the same old bar Galactica, a great long bar stocked with every kind of booze in the galaxy, a big room scattered with rickety chairs and tables, sawdust on the floor to soak up the blood. The whole place was filled with a gang of murderous looking mercenaries, all armed to the teeth, staring at us threateningly. They didn't look much like a welcoming committee. Well, not the sort the doctor was expecting. So, we went up to the bar and we ordered drinks. A villainous-looking alien barman, who looked like a cross between a werewolf and an octopus, served up three tankards of some foaming hellbrew. Meanwhile, the mercenaries gathered around us in a menacing semicircle. For a while, they just glared at us. Then, the biggest and nastiest of them stepped forward and demanded to know who we were and what we wanted. We're guests, here to attend the funeral of Madame Delilah. What time is the ceremony? A mercenary shouted, I know them! It's the Doctor and his mates! They came back here and brought the Daleks down on us! It was the Doctor who got Madame Delilah killed! That is not true! But no one was listening! Someone else yelled, There's still a price on his head! We can sell him back to the Daleks! Another mercenary shouted, Let's just kill them! We can have four funerals as easy as one! Get em! Things got rather lively after that. A couple of them rushed the doctor, but he sidestepped them, and they hurtled into a wall. I kicked one of them where it hurt and hit another over the head with a bottle. And I snatched a sword from the nearest mercenary and fought off three others in a dazzling display of skilled swordsmanship. You were such an Errol Flynn. All the same, things were looking bad. They closed in on us, drove us into a corner of the bar and were obviously getting ready for the final rush when a familiar voice bellowed, STOP! And they all stopped. It was Cal. I never thought I'd be glad to see him again. He swaggered into the bar and roared, What do you all think you're doing? Is this the way the mercenaries treat their friends? Someone yelled, They're no friends of ours! That doctor got Madame Delilah killed! And Carl bellowed, Shut up and listen, the law of you! They shut up. After a moment, Carl went on, Madame Delilah's death was a tragic accident. If you want someone to blame, blame the Daleks. The doctor was Madame Delilah's friend. It was her last request that he attend her funeral as an honoured guest. The mercenaries drifted away. They were still glaring, though. And you could see that they were only half convinced. I could hear them muttering and grumbling amongst themselves. Carl bowed to the Doctor and Jason. Nice to see you again, Doctor. And you, Jason. Then he bowed even deeper to me and kissed my hand. And especially you, Crystal. <laughs> You've got to admit he's got style. He's certainly a handsome devil. If you like the flashy type. Well, some girls do. Anyway, the Doctor reasoned with him. Well, there is some truth in what your fellow mercenaries were saying, Carl. The Daleks did come here hunting me, and Madame Delilah sacrificed herself to save me. In a way, I am responsible for her death. Carl said, Shut up, Doctor. I'm trying to keep you alive. Yeah, I've been wondering about that. Why? Because that's what Delilah wanted. Mercenaries started filing out of the bar by a rear entrance. Time for the funeral, said Carl. Come on. We followed the mercenaries out of the bar. The cemetery straggled over a scrubby little hill just behind the bar. It was a simple ceremony. Four brawny mercenaries carried Madame Delilah's coffin towards an open grave. It was a suitably gaudy affair. Scarlet with gold handles. Delilah would have loved it. They lowered it into the ground and Carl made a little speech. He said, We're here to say goodbye to Madame Delilah. She was the life and soul of Bar Galactica for many years. She died because she made a deal with the Daleks and they tried to cheat her. She wouldn't stand for it. Never cheat a mercenary. So, they killed her. There was a growl of anger from the mercenaries. Carl held up his hand 
But we got our revenge. The Doctor and I scuppered the Daleks' plan. Stopped them conquering a planet they'd wanted for hundreds of years. Delilah died saving the Doctor's life. There was another angry growl. That's why he's here. That's the way Delilah wanted it. Carl grabbed a handful of Earth and threw it on the coffin. Bye, Delilah. The Doctor, Chris and I did the same. One by one, the mercenaries followed. We turned and made our way back to the bar. Once inside, everyone muscled up to the bar for drinks. Carl shoved his way to the front and got us ours, then led us to a relatively quiet corner table. A very touching ceremony, Carl. I'm glad we were able to be there. But I've got a feeling that you've got another reason for inviting us here. Carl started to explain. Madame Delilah was certainly dying when we left Bar Galactica, but she wasn't quite dead. When we went back to the TARDIS, Carl had stayed with her for her last few moments. She started to talk, sometimes rambling, sometimes quite clearly. She told Carl she'd been given the secret recently by a dying mercenary. He'd gone mad under some terrible strain. Delilah said she'd been awaiting her chance to investigate, but now it was too late for her. There was something about a great treasure just waiting there for the taking. But that wasn't the real point of the message. The important thing was the danger. The whole of the universe was in danger. She said the danger was waiting, there, in Ultima Thule, dormant. But it was coming, inevitably, sooner or later, unless someone did something to prevent it. She didn't want to die with the responsibility on her conscience, so she was passing it over to the Doctor. Apparently, her very last words were... Even a renegade can do some good in the universe. I remember saying that to her myself. And she remembered. Carl produced a ragged piece of parchment. The dying mercenary gave her this as well. The doctor studied the parchment. It was covered with weird alien symbols and strings of numbers. What do you make of it? asked Carl. I'm not sure. I'd need time and access to the TARDIS's navigational systems. He started questioning Carl about the dying mercenary's message. Exactly what he had told Delilah. Every last detail. Carl got quite tense. Look, I'm passing on the ramblings about ravings. First the mad mercenaries, then Delilah's. It's hardly very precise. Please try. It's vitally important. So Carl tried. He went over and over it. And what it boiled down to was this. There was an enormous treasure in some faraway place called Ultima Thule. The treasure was there for the taking. If you could reach it. But so was the danger to the entire universe. It was like some cosmic time bomb ticking away. So what about this Ultima Thule place? Asked Carl. Where is it exactly? Ultima Thule is an age-old symbol for some distant, unreachable place. Some people think it was an island, but others say it was something very different. A mysterious region beyond the end of the universe. By a route obscure and lonely, haunted by ill angels only, where an Eidolon named Night on a black throne reigns upright. I have reached these lands but newly, from an ultimate dim Thule, from a weird, wild climb that lieth sublime, out of space, out of time. Good old Edgar Allan. Who? Asked Carl. Edgar Allan Poe, 19th century earth poet, saw a lot of things in dreams and visions. The Nazis believed in Ultima Thule as well. The what? Ah, well, they were about 150 years before your time. The Nazis were a ruthless military dictatorship that conquered much of earth in the 20th century, including, at least for a time, your homeland in France, Jason. They were actually very like the Daleks. And they believed a race of giant supermen lived in Thule, linked into the cosmos by magical powers. They wanted to contact them to use their powers to create an Aryan super race. Very superstitious lot, the Nazis. Carl said, never mind the mumbo chumbo. How do we get there? It might, just might, be possible to reach it in the TARDIS, but what's this we? You are not coming. Oh, yes, I am. Who gave you Delilah's last message and that parchment with the coordinates? 
And there's something here for both of us, Doctor. Treasure for me, and a chance to save the universe for you. I'm coming with you. What we hadn't noticed was that the surrounding mercenaries had been edging closer and listening hard. Of course he's going with you! We're all going with you! yelled one of them. There's enough treasure for everyone! That magic box of yours will hold the lot of us! No! We don't know what kind of supernatural powers we'll be faced with. If I arrive with an army, we could all be slaughtered! Carl shouted, The doctor's right! I'll go as your representative. When I get back with the treasure, I'll see you all get your share. Suddenly, he produced a blaster the size of a cannon. Now we're leaving, he said loudly. I'll kill the first man who tries to follow us. He turned to the doctor. Well, doctor, you leave with me, or you don't leave here alive. For the moment, Carl, your argument seems to be persuasive. We started backing slowly towards the door. We'd almost reached it when a mercenary yelled, Come on, get there! Carl just wants the treasure for himself. He can't kill us all. Suddenly they rushed us, yelling and screaming. Carl fired a couple of blasts, one at their feet, another over their heads. I don't think he really wanted to kill fellow mercenaries. That held them for a moment, and we used the time to turn and dash for the door. We got outside, and Carl grabbed a bit of broken chair and used it to jam the doors. Then, we all sprinted for the TARDIS. We got there just as the barroom door was burst open with a crash. The Doctor opened the TARDIS, and we all piled inside. He hit the dematerialization control. I was never so glad to hear that wheezing groaning sound. The central column started to rise and fall, and the Doctor straightened up. Well, we're out of danger for the moment. You mean we're out of the frying pan? Next stop, the fire! Next stop, nowhere. Unless I can get these coordinates worked out. Jason, Crystal, look after our guest, will you? Uh, rest and refreshment, that sort of thing. Peering at the scrap of parchment, he began moving around the console, checking and adjusting controls. So we took Carl to the TARDIS hospitality suite, where there are comfortable chairs and a machine that dispenses any kind of food or drink you care to ask for. I dialed myself a strong coffee got Chris a nice cup of tea, and served Carl a tankard of some foaming ooch that only a mercenary could swallow. He swigged half of it down, looked around and asked, How big is this TARDIS contraption anyway? I told him its size was infinite. There was even a swimming pool somewhere. I don't think he believed me. Then he started asking about the doctor. Who was he? What was he? Well, that was harder to answer. I told him the doctor was a time lord and he travelled through time and space. Doing what? asked Carl. Getting into trouble mostly, I said. We told Carl how we'd met the doctor. I said I was an aristocrat, a marquis in fact, living in France at exactly the time my fellow countrymen decided to have a revolution. They invented a head chopping machine called the guillotine and decided I was a perfect candidate. The doctor turned up out of nowhere and saved my neck. As a matter of fact, he did it twice. I told Carl that my involvement with the doctor was entirely his fault. I was singing at a nightclub when he and his Cybermen friends kidnapped the American envoy. Carl shrugged. Sorry about that, Crystal. Nothing personal. I was hired for the job. Business is business. At this point, the doctor came in, which was probably just as well. He asked us to come with him and we followed him back to the control room. Once he was there, he just looked at us for a moment. I don't think I've ever seen him so worried. I just wanted to warn you all about the dangers you're facing. It's only fair you should all know what you're up against. We could die in the attempt to reach Ultima Thule. We could be stranded outside time and space forever. If we do succeed in reaching Ultima Thule, we might be unable to return. For that reason, I think I should take you both home, together or separately as you wish. Carl, I'll return you to the Bar Galactica. Carl laughed. Without the treasure, my missionary friends would cut my throat. I'll risk the trip, Doctor. Now what about you two? We looked at each other for a moment, then we both said... We'll, we'll stay, stay doctor. doctor. And despite it all, it seemed funny. The Doctor didn't say anything, but I think he was pleased. He turned to the controls. <sighs> then I'll try. I must warn you. You may experience some rather uncomfortable sensations. It's no easy business leaving one dimension and entering another. 
It involves an extremely complex series of adjustments, all performed at top speed, and it's highly dangerous. We all watched as the doctor's hands started moving over the controls. He dashed from side to side of the console, adjusting switches at a frantic speed. The central column started to rise and fall slowly at first, then slamming up and down. The whole console juddered. The weirdest thing was the sound. Normally the TARDIS makes a kind of wheezing, groaning sound. This was more of a howling, shrieking noise. Then, the strange sensation started. The ones the Doctor had warned us about. It was like reality was dissolving. We were dissolving. The air seemed to become thick and gluey and it was hard to breathe. Everything around us, the console, other people, even the control room walls seemed to be moving, flowing, undulating. It felt as if everything and everybody was dissolving into some kind of primal soup. Then it all stopped. The howling noise, the weird sensations, everything. We all stood looking at each other, stunned and shaken. Carl, tough, hard, bitten mercenary Carl, was sprawled out on the floor in a dead faint. The doctor ignored him and went on working at the controls. Things seemed calmer now, and the central column went back to its steady rise and fall. The Doctor seemed calmer too. He stepped back from the console, then moved around it, studying the instrument readings and adjusting the occasional switch. <sighs> What's going on, Doctor? I asked. I'm not sure. We broke through some kind of reality barrier, then once we were through, everything changed. We're making a relatively calm passage now. In fact, it's almost as if we were being guided. Are the three of you all right? I'm okay. Crystal? I'm fine. A bit shaky, but fine. Carl's not too good, though. Oh, he'll be fine. The shock was too much for his system. <clears throat> it was nearly too much for mine. Oh, he's coming round. Listen. I can't hear a thing. Exactly. There's nothing to hear. Suddenly, I realised what he meant. Normally, the TARDIS generates a low-level background sound, the whirring and clicking and humming of hundreds of complex instruments and controls. It's very quiet and you can't hear it unless you're listening for it, but it's always there. Now there was nothing. Nothing at all. Look at the instruments. We looked. Every dial and meter registered zero. Well, not quite everyone. Here and there there was a flicker of life. So where are we? Nowhere. No time, and no place. We're outside time and space altogether. Carl had recovered by now, and was climbing to his feet. Where are we? He asked dazedly. Is this Ultima Thule? I'm not sure. The scanner seems to be working. Well, let's take a look. He switched on the scanner, and a bleak landscape appeared on the screen. A bare and rocky plain, wreathed in mist. Lightning crackled over the distant mountains. How come the scanner works? No idea. It seems that only the instruments connected with space-time travel are frozen. The TARDIS is still functioning in a limited way. We just can't go anywhere. Yes, the atmosphere gauge seems to be working as well. The weather outside is damp dank and murky. Temperature's pretty low, but perfectly tolerable, and the air is breathable. It's almost as if someone or something wants us to go outside. Cal said, Let's go then. We won't find any treasure by hanging around here. You seem to have made a quick recovery, I said. Carl looked embarrassed. Uh, don't mention that little episode in the Bar Galactica when we get back. There's not much future for a delicate mercenary. What do you think, Doctor, about going outside? I'm not sure. We need to be cautious. I'm a little concerned by the relative ease of the last part of our journey. After those first tremendous difficulties, it was all too easy. Isn't that good, though, Doctor? We couldn't have stood that amount of strain for very much longer. I almost felt we were being guided. And I always get worried when things start going too well. The Doctor's right, said Carl. 
When things start running suspiciously smoothly, you're probably heading into a trap. So what do we do about it? Carl's right. We'll discover nothing sitting here. Now, if you know you're walking into a trap, the only thing to do is to spring it and hope you survive and learn something in the process. And it's not all bad news. It isn't. If whatever guided us wants us to come here, then it probably doesn't want to kill us. Well, not immediately, anyway. That's a great consolation. Well, let's go if we're going. Now come to the wardrobe room and I'll find you some warm clothes. He led us to an enormous room where clothes of every kind were hanging on racks. The doctor disappeared into a distant corner and emerged wearing a large fur coat. I knew I still had it somewhere. <laughs> it makes you look like a yeti. Yeah, funny you should say that. This coat came in very useful in Tibet. He issued the rest of us hooded coats made of thick warm cloth. 20th century earth invention called duffel coats. Monty swore by them. Suitably muffled up, we went back to the control room. Well, here we go. He went over to the console and touched one of the few still working controls. The TARDIS door swung open and we went out into the swirling mists. Once outside the TARDIS, things were just as bad as they'd looked on the scanner screen. We were on a bare, rocky plain shrouded in swirling mists. The air was heavy and oppressive, the way it gets before a storm. Lightning crackled over distant mountains and there was a low rumble of thunder. Charming spot, Doctor, said Carl. Now what? Look just ahead. There seems to be some kind of path. And the thing about paths is they lead somewhere. So, let's follow this one. We set off, following the trail towards the distant mountains. The path grew steeper and steeper. We climbed into the foothills, making our way along a winding gully between high walls of jagged rock. It was very cold. There was a biting wind, yet at the same time the air was clammy and hard to breathe. Nobody spoke. We just trudged on and on. Suddenly, I wasn't on the path anymore. I was in the nightclub back on Earth. I'd just finished my number and I was standing in the spotlight, listening to the applause. For a moment I was happy and proud, 
And then suddenly, sinister figures appeared from nowhere. Mercenaries. They started exchanging shots with the American envoy squad of bodyguards. The air was full of gunfire. I crouched down, terrified, just wanting it to end. I peered out from behind the bandstand and saw the mercenaries being shot down. Giant silver figures appeared and shot down the bodyguards. They seized the envoy and they all faded away. My debut was ruined, and I felt frightened and angry at the same time. Then I wasn't in the nightclub anymore. I was in a strange, alien landscape with winged bat-like figures circling in the sky giving weird cries. One of them swooped down and snatched me up, carrying me high up into the sky. It hovered over a fiery pool as if determined to drop me in. Someone cried out and we swooped back towards the ground. Then I was at the controls of a spaceship, rocketing through space, trying to dodge the giant meteors hurtling towards me. I was sure I was going to die at any moment. Christa. Someone was shouting my name. Chris! Christa! It was me. You'd collapsed and you were staring up at us all, glassy-eyed. You just weren't with us anymore. I certainly wasn't. I came to and saw the doctor looking down at me in concern. Now what happened? I got to my feet, still shaking with terror, and told him. Fears. Someone, something, is plucking fears from your mind and using them to terrify you. All of you, guard your thoughts. Concentrate on the here and now. But it was already too late for me. I was gone. I wasn't on the rocky path anymore. I was in a Paris square in 1789. I was standing at the foot of the guillotine, surrounded by a revolutionary mob howling for my head. My hands were bound, and a couple of revolutionary guards hustled me to the foot of the steps. Well, well, didn't get that far, did you? Sneered one of them. How about that then? One minute he vanishes, next he just strolls back, cool as you please. Well, no need to worry, Marquis. We saved your place. Madame Guillotine won't be disappointed after all. I was dragged up the steps and thrown face down on the bloodstained platform, my neck in the waiting niche. I stared down into the basket, half full of severed heads. I heard the howls of the mob, the swish of the blade as it came down. Jason! Jason! Jason, you have to fight it! Chris? Doctor? It's attacking us one by one. Carl, are you...? Carl, big tough Carl, was slumped back against the rocky wall. His face twisted in terror. No! He screamed. No, not again! I can't bear it! He was actually sobbing. We brought him round too, though it wasn't easy. Now what happened, Carl? Where were you? It'll be better if you tell us. Carl drew a deep, shuddering breath. We raided the state treasury on Aldebaran IV. A whole gang of us. Half the gold in the galaxy was supposed to be stashed away in there. We broke in all right, but it was a setup. Someone had sold us out. There were Imperial guards there. Hundreds of them. They surrounded us and shot us down. It was a massacre. How did you get away? I didn't, said Carl. I was killed with the rest of them. At least I thought I was. I was knocked unconscious. I had a head wound and my face was covered in blood. Luckily the guards thought I was dead too. I woke up in a mass grave in the jungle covered with the dead bodies of the other mercenaries. I lay there all day covered with bloody corpses. It was the worst experience of my life. When it got dark I crawled away into the jungle. I was half dead before I reached a spaceport and stowed away. He shuddered. Suddenly there I was back in that pit, under a pile of corpses. This time I knew I'd never get out. Yes, it's attacking us one at a time. Everyone but you, Doctor. Doctor, are you all right? No, leave me. You cannot enter. My mind is shielded. Go. What's happening? Oh, that was a near thing. What's going on, Doctor? Who's doing this to us and why? The who is whatever power rules this place. As to why, I think it's studying us, testing us. It wants to dominate and control us. As a first step, it's trying to terrify us by inducing old fears from our pasts. 
But it didn't work with you, Doctor? It worked to some extent, I'm afraid. It took a little time before I felt an alien presence in my mind and put up my defences. It seized something from my memories, I fear. But not enough to affect me as powerfully as it did you three. Now, uh, we'd better get on. And be alert. There may be more attacks to come. What can we do, Doctor? We don't have your mental defences. Concentrate on reality. On the here and now. The cold, the wind, the rocks, the back of the person in front of you. The Doctor in the lead, we trudged on up the steep and rocky path. It led us into a little wood. A scattered group of leafless trees with jagged branches outlined against the murky sky. Uh, careful now. I sense evil here. Suddenly, a black shape dropped from the trees, landing crouched in front of the Doctor. It straightened up and we saw it was a man. A tall, thin figure with a long white face and glowing red eyes. It reached for the Doctor with long claw-like hands. Beside me, I heard Jason whisper, It's a vampire. I recognized it at once. The vampire legend was common in my part of France. But to see one in real life, it chilled the blood. The thing smiled, bearing long white fangs, and spoke in a cold, hissing voice. Doctor, I have been waiting for you. It gave a hideous, cackling laugh. <laughs> no crucifixes here, Doctor. No running water, no garlic, and never, never any sunlight. You are mine, Doctor. With terrifying speed, it sprang at the Doctor's throat. The Doctor caught its bony wrists and held it back. They stood for a moment, locked in struggle. I could see it was taking all of the Doctor's strength to hold the thing off. I remembered hearing somewhere, in old Dracula movies, I suppose, that vampires were incredibly strong. It forced the Doctor back, and the fangs got nearer and nearer to his throat. I heard the Doctor gasp. Branch! Tree! Branch! It took me a moment to realise what he meant. Then I leapt up and grabbed a low-hanging branch, pulling it down within reach. Carl whipped out a huge knife and cut the branch free. I held it out and with a couple of quick slashes, he sharpened the end. With a sudden desperate effort, the doctor threw the vampire off. As it sprang again, Carl grabbed the broken branch from Jason with both hands. He lunged forward, using it like a lance, and thrust it deep into the vampire's heart. The vampire gave a terrible shriek and staggered back, clawing at the branch as it crumpled to the ground. The doctor looked down at the body. The ritual stake through the heart. That's all you need. Very traditionally minded vampires. As we watched, the uddled shape of the dead vampire crumbled to dust. Is that one of the horrors the alien snatched from your mind? I'm afraid so. I've had a number of close encounters with vampires. I wonder what else it got hold of. We were soon to find out. We made our way out of the little wood and carried on down the path. It rose more steeply now, to the summit of a little hill. As we began to climb, something appeared at the top of the hill, barring our way. It was curiously shapeless, a giant glowing blob. It pulsed and undulated as we watched, its shape ever-changing. I turned to the doctor. What the devil is that? It's a rutan. An electrical energy creature is a shapeshifter too, though it has to kill and dissect you before it can copy you. Another old enemy plucked from my mind. The thing on the hill spoke in a high, shrill voice. We are the Rotten Doctor. You owe us a death. A collective consciousness, one mind between the lot of them, makes them very difficult to argue with. I'm damned if I'm going to be scaled off by a giant jellyfish now, Carl. Pulling out his blaster, he strode a few paces up the hill and took aim. No, Carl, don't! It was too late. Carl fired and the creature absorbed the blast, growing larger and glowing brighter than ever. It shot out a lightning bolt of electricity that sent Carl staggering back, the blaster falling from his hand. It's useless attacking them with energy weapons. They absorb the energy and use it to grow stronger. What kind of weapon do we need, I asked. The doctor picked up Carl's blaster. 
Now this one might still do with a little adaptation. Now the rest of you, get some of those smaller rocks by the side of the path and break them up. Use big rocks to smash up smaller ones. I need a pile of rock chippings, as small and as sharp as possible. While the doctor worked on Carl's blaster, the three of us hammered away, bashing one rock with another. It was hard, grinding work. At last, the doctor looked up from the blaster. That should do it. How are you getting on? We handed over our little piles of rock chippings, and one by one, the doctor tipped them down the muzzle of Carl's blaster. He handed the blaster to Carl. Try it now. Carl moved closer and closer. The root and fired another lightning bolt. Carl leapt aside and fired, but this time the result was very different. The swarm of stone chippings tore into the centre of the rooting and blasted it apart. It gave a high-pitched, unearthly shriek and dissolved into a puddle of slime. Blaster into blunderbuss. How's that for reverse technology? We climbed the little hill, stepping aside to avoid the spreading pool of slimy ooze that was all that remained of the rutan. Suddenly, a silver figure appeared ahead. It just materialized out of nowhere. It wasn't particularly big, and it was man-shaped, more or less, with everything. Head, torso, and limbs sort of rounded off. It didn't look particularly frightening, and I was surprised to see the Doctor staring at the thing in horror. Why... What is it, Doctor? I asked. It's a Raston warrior robot. The most deadly killing machine in the universe. It never tires, it can't be defeated, and it can't die. Now we really are in trouble. Does it look too terrifying to me? I moved closer for a better look. The robot raised its arm and a steel javelin flashed past my head and ricocheted off a nearby boulder. I gave a yell of alarm and ducked back into cover. Don't be deceived by its looks. It's got a variety of built-in weapons. I once saw it slice a squad of Cybermen into sushi. It can teleport too. Another javelin whizzed between us and we ducked down. So what do we do now? Asked Carl. I take it my blaster won't have any effect, especially now it's a blunderbuss. We must use the ultimate weapon, the mind. Quiet, everybody. I must think. The doctor sank down, cross-legged, into a yoga-like pose of concentration. The rest of us looked on uneasily. Eyes closed, face and body completely still, he looked as if he might sit there forever. Luckily, he didn't. After a minute or two, his eyes opened and he stood up. It's the only logical answer. The thing to do now is to test it. To my horror, he began marching up the hill towards the Raston robot. A steel javelin flashed past him, then another and another. The doctor ignored them. A few feet from the robot, he stopped. The robot raised its arm, and a long samurai-type sword suddenly grew from the end of it. One slash, I thought, one scything sweep, and the doctor's head would come rolling down the path towards us. We heard the doctor's defiant voice. Well, why don't you strike? You could have killed me coming up the path. One stroke and you could kill me now. But you won't, will you? Because the one who created you doesn't wish me to die. Killing is all you're good for. And if you can't kill, you're useless. So go. The Raston robot vanished. Yeah. Come along, the rest of you. Let's be on our way. As we caught up with the doctor, Carl said, That was a bit of a gamble, wasn't it? The doctor nodded. Yes, but I believe that the power that runs things here wanted us to come. It lured us here with the story of treasure, helped on the final stage of our journey. Why should he kill us, kill me, at the last moment? The theory was logical. My only worry was that the Raston robot was so programmed to kill that it could have slaughtered us all out of pure habit. Ah, you know, I think we've arrived. The narrow gully had widened into a rocky plateau, and there, in the center, was a huge black castle. It had everything a castle ought to have. Towers, turrets, battlements, massively thick stone walls, and a set of enormous iron doors. Cheerful looking place. Looks like somewhere your vampire friend might hang out. It seems to be deserted. How do we get in? Let's find out. There you are. 
I told you we were expected. We walked through the open doors and they clanged shut behind us. We found ourselves in a vast, high-ceilinged great hall. It was lit by blazing torches set high in the walls, and there was an incredibly long banqueting table stretching down the center. On the far side of the table was an enormous empty throne. One end of the banqueting table was set with a feast. Roast meat, chicken and vegetables, fruits, cheese, jugs of beer, and open bottles of wine. The other end of the long table was piled high with treasure. There were heaps of gold and silver coins, great piles of jewels and bars of gold stacked high. Together with the doctor, we both moved towards the food. But not Carl. He shot past the food and drink and rushed up to the treasure, plunging his hands into the pile of jewels and gold and silver coins, hefting the gold bars to feel their weight. Like I said, Doctor, something for everyone, he called. Can you get all this in the TARDIS? Treasure always comes at a price. Come and have some food while we discover what we've got to do to earn it. Reluctantly, Carl left the treasure. He picked up a roast chicken and bit into it, and took a swig from a bottle of wine. What do you mean, earn it? Well, there's always a deal, Carl. You're a mercenary, you should know that. You don't imagine whoever, whatever, got us here did it just to make us a present of all that treasure, do you? Carl looked indignantly at his chicken and wine. This stuff's got no real taste. It looks alright, but there's no satisfaction. He slammed the bottle and the chicken carcass back on the table. So, what's this deal then? An incredibly deep and sonorous voice boomed. The deal is that you obey me. You must fulfill my wishes. The voice came from the throne. It was occupied now by a giant black-robed figure with a long, sad face and burning eyes. It wore a huge golden crown set with jewels. Who are you? And what do you want from us? I am the Eidolon, and I want my freedom. Ah, yes. Where an Eidolon named Knight on a black throne reigns upright. How did old Edgar Allan Poe ever hear of you? The deep, sad voice said, I have the power to send dreams and visions, though only a few are sensitive enough to receive them. The poet Poe was one. It is my only contact with your world, and I have used it to summon help, rescue. I made a most promising contact with another human, a mercenary, I sent him instructions and coordinates, but his mind was shattered by the contact and he went mad and died. With you, Doctor, I have at last succeeded. Now you have great power here. Total power. Why would you want to leave? Power? Power over shadows? I myself am but a shadow. I crave reality, Doctor. Your reality. Real flesh and blood, real feelings, real sensations. How'd you come to be here? There was a moment's silence before the Eidolon spoke. Long eons ago, before the beginnings of recorded time, the Old Ones, the Old Gods, feared my powers, my ambitions. They banded together against me and exiled me here, in another dimension, a world of shadows. But now I shall live again. And what will you do in our universe if we take you there? I shall rule it, of course. Or destroy it if it displeases me. Are you aware that the mingling of your dimension with ours could destroy the fabric of reality? And perhaps the universe itself? The Eidolon gave a great howl of laughter. <laughs> that, Doctor, is a risk I am prepared to take. After all, what have I got to lose? Suddenly, Carl shouted, Now, hang on a minute. You say everything here is shadows? Illusion? Like this food? What about the treasure? He rushed over to the treasure and grabbed a handful of gold coins. They faded away, leaving him empty-handed. Fake food? Fake treasure? said Carl bitterly. What have you got to offer in exchange for our help? Your lives. There is nothing here for you. No nourishment of any kind. 
No food, no drink, no air to breathe, if I will it so. To live, you must leave here. To leave here, you must take me with you. Defy me, and you will all die horribly. Well, Doctor? The Doctor stood for a moment, lost in thought. Then, to our utter astonishment, he said calmly... Very well. I agree. I stared at the Doctor in amazement. Doctor, you mustn't! You, you can't just turn this mad tyrant loose on the universe! She's right, Doctor. I mean, I, I don't want to die, but only Carl didn't protest. I reckon any option that just might save his life was okay by him. The Doctor held up his hand. Listen to me, both of you. You've got to trust me. Trust me to do the right thing. He looked hard at both of us, and I saw a message in his eyes. Jason did too. I said, All right, Doctor, we'll trust you. The Doctor looked up at the Eidolon. I'll do as you ask, but I shall need your cooperation. First, you must let me go back to the TARDIS. No need, Doctor. The TARDIS will come to you. Silently, with none of the usual wheezing and groaning, the TARDIS appeared before us in the Great Hall. Right. Now you must free the TARDIS from all restraints. Unless you do that, I can't possibly take you anywhere. It's done, Doctor. One last thing. I have to program the TARDIS controls for our return. It's a long and complicated task, and I shall need some time in the TARDIS completely alone and undisturbed. This time there was quite a long pause before the Eidolon replied. Very well, Doctor. It shall be as you say. But your companions will be my hostages. Attempt to leave on your own and you condemn them to an agonizing death. All three are old and valued friends. Rest assured, I won't abandon them. With another farewell, he entered the TARDIS and the door closed behind him. We waited in an uneasy silence. I picked up a chunk of cheese and made a feeble joke. Non-fattening food and drink. You could make a fortune in the diet business. Nobody laughed. Carl was still looking uneasy. You reckon he'll come back? I mean, if he can do nothing for us, he might as well save himself. Just because that's what you do, I said. No sense in squabbling amongst ourselves, I said. Who's squabbling, protested Carl. I only said... Seize this babbling! The Eidolon thundered from his throne. Pray that your friend emerges soon or your deaths will be terrible. He obviously wasn't in the mood for chit-chat. So we ceased and carried on waiting in silence. For what seemed like a very, very long time. At last, the TARDIS door opened, and the Doctor emerged, looking worn and haggard. All done. Eidolon, everything is prepared for your return. You are sure? The Eidolon sounded suspicious. Of course I'm sure. I've just spent a great deal of time making sure. I'm risking our lives too, you know. The Eidolon rose and descended from his throne, striding majestically towards the TARDIS. The Doctor bowed, gesturing towards the open door of the TARDIS. Time to return. Your carriage awaits, Your Majesty. The Eidolon paused for a moment, apparently still suspicious, and turned to give us all a threatening glare. No trickery, Doctor, or you all die horribly. I know that. Time is wasting. The Eidolon entered the TARDIS, and instantly the Doctor slammed the door shut behind him and leaped back. With a wheezing and groaning that sounded louder and fiercer than usual, the TARDIS disappeared. What have you done? yelled Carl. Now he's gone away and we're stuck here. The Doctor sank wearily onto a bench. I'm sure Carl's wrong, but what have you done, Doctor? I asked. <sighs> Quite a lot. As soon as I got inside the TARDIS, I sent an urgent message to the Time Lords, asking for their help. Once I convinced them of the danger, I preset the controls for Gallifrey and locked them, and rigged the TARDIS for instant takeoff the second the doors closed. 
So what happens now? Now the TARDIS will deliver him into the hands of the Time Lords. The instant he leaves the TARDIS, he'll be sealed into a sterile force field, powerful enough to stop him contaminating our reality. Only the Time Lords have the technology to deal with him. They may destroy him, that, or confine him forevermore. There's no danger he could escape en route, Doctor? If he got control of the TARDIS... No, no, no. The moment he got inside, he'd be held in a stasis field. He'll be helpless and immobile until he arrives. He may have been all-powerful here, but he's in the TARDIS now, and I'm all-powerful there. But what about us? Oh, oh, didn't I say? Well, as soon as the Time Lords have dealt with the Eidolon, they'll send the TARDIS back here, on automatic, and we can all go home. You're sure they'll do that? asked Carl. I heard they weren't all that fond of you. If they just keep the TARDIS, they'll be rid of the Eidolon and you as well. Oh, they wouldn't do that. They're a devious and ruthless lot, but they do have some principles. Mind you, it didn't work out too well last time I asked for their help. They exiled me to Earth. Carl had said enough to worry us, and the wait, like the one before, seemed very long. The Doctor didn't help. All the same. I hope they're not too long about it. We're still in a very unstable situation. How come? With the Eidolon gone, surely... Well, that's just it. This world only existed because of the Eidolon's will. And now that he's gone... Look. It's starting. As we watched, the food and drink on the table simply faded away. Then, much to Carl's disgust, the treasure vanished as well. I think he still had hopes it was somehow real. Then, the roof of the castle disappeared, and the walls as well. Suddenly, we were standing on the bare rocky plain. I was beginning to fear that the ground would vanish from under our feet, leaving us floating in space, when I heard an all-too-welcome wheezing and groaning, and the TARDIS materialized. The doctor opened the door, and we all dashed inside. I was last in, and I swear that for my last step, I was walking on air. And that was the end of it, really. We stopped off at the Bar Galactica to deliver Carl. He reckoned he could make his peace with the mercenaries about returning with no treasure. I might have to kill one or two of them first, he said. Or well, maybe this will help. It would never do for a mercenary to come back without a profit. He handed Carl a huge glowing jewel on the end of a gold chain. Carl took it cheerfully. Thanks, Doctor. It'll come in handy if I have to hypnotise anyone. Then we came back here, until the Doctor kindly landed us with this little holiday task. That's it then, and I hope the Time Lords are happy with it. Let's hope the Doctor is too. Ah, there you are. All finished, are we? Told you it wouldn't take too long. Now let's have a listen. You start. <clears throat> well, it started after we'd escaped from the Daleks. And the Cybermen and the murderous mercenaries. And they'd gone back to London and formed the Daleks' plan to blow up the peace conference. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, The Companion Chronicles, The Anachronauts. It's a desert island. Something on the edge of my perception, watching our every step. A time sprite glared at us with huge black eyes, her skin shimmering as if made of silver. The universe is big enough for anything to be possible. Impossible. 
impossible! It's impossible! Nothing could stop the wall of noise. It, it's the Brandenburg Gate. Then you know where we are. Berlin, 1966. Behind us, guns and dogs, unseen figures, the sound of their heavy boots on tarmac. We didn't even know what we were running from. Unthinkable! History used like a gun! Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com Hello, I'm David Richardson. I'm the producer of The Companion Chronicles and you've been listening to Beyond the Ultimate Adventure. And here with me is Noel Sullivan, who plays Jason. Hello. Claire Huckle, who plays Chris. Hi. And the boss himself, Jason Hay-Gallery. Hello. Who's been directing. Hello. 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 Now, a question, starting off for Noel and Claire. What's it been like coming back? Because it's two years since you did The Ultimate Adventure, isn't it? Wow, I can't even believe it's that long. Uh, Time really has flown by. Um, but it, it's it's great to come back to it and try it without any singing. Absolutely, <laughs> no warming up this morning, eh, Noel? Yeah, it was brilliant. Did you miss the singing? I missed the singing. I felt <laughs> hard done by you. Wouldn't let you wouldn't let me have any songs in this joke. No, there's a very good reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, did, did you miss the singing, Noel and Claire? Or was it? it well, I, I just think it was a very different take. I found. Um, I found this a lot more challenging than last time, in fact. Um, I think because there were more characters uh, uh, on the ultimate adventure, you were able to listen and learn from from people a bit more, whereas we had to take on the voices of different characters this time, which actually, when you're speaking in a strong French accent, is very, very (laughs) difficult to do, as I've discovered. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the script was pretty much in the past tense all the way through, and I've never had to play a voice like that and a voice like that <laughs> go and do your rooting voice as well go oh yeah and a voice like that with no effect so I've really enjoyed that it was a challenge which is always good Claire you got all the villains really didn't you because you were the did. rooter and you were the idolon I love playing a villain because I'm usually typecast as the kind of innocent little girl so for me to play a villain little do they know little do they know that I absolutely love playing the birdie yeah no I loved it brilliant and uh, just looking back to the ultimate adventure I mean what are your strongest memories of when we did it uh, my my one that'll stick with me I'm still like really really proud of it I, I tell everybody who'll listen and bore them to tears about the first time I heard the man who does the Dalek voice and, and to be stood next to Colin Baker and watch him it was really like a masterclass in, in audio work and um, it was a complete honour and I'm really proud that I did it Absolutely I think the thing I remember the most is learning <laughs> this kind of Eurovision type 80s song <laughs> <laughs> which was brilliant. I felt like Kylie for a day, which is really exciting, which bopping is along. slightly ironic, because one of the people who might have been up for playing it in the first place when they did it as a play was Kylie Minogue. Really? There you go. Fantastic. Jason, you and your stage facts. I know. He knows Sorry. everything. He knows his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're going away this evening. You're going to be playing Danny Zuko in Greece. You've been doing that for a while. Then you're going to do We Will Rock You. I mean, for both of you, what's the contrast between doing big theatre shows like that and then coming in here where it's a microphone and it's quite minimal? It's a very different affair altogether. Um, I mean, one of the great things that I'm learning about studio work is that if you get it wrong, you can do it again which um, you don't have the luxury of when you're on stage live. You have to get it right every night. Um, and with the amount of outtakes that we've had today, I'm quite glad <laughs> I didn't have to, have to get it right every time. Oh, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, it's quite nice just being able to come dressed in your normal clothes. You know, you don't have to dress up as a character. You just literally play it with your voice. And I, I've really enjoyed that. And I'm going to come to Jason now. Mm. This was your idea, wasn't it, to do a sequel? Yeah, I've got to say, when when I first mentioned it to you, um, it seemed difficult to actually do a production, a full-blown production as a sequel to The Ultimate Adventure. But we had so much fun doing the first one, and Colin had remarked how much fun he'd had doing it, Mm. that I thought it would be a good idea to do something as a sequel. And 
really we wanted to get some new writing from Terence as well because he is a legend, as it were, of, of Doctor Who. And it's lovely to have Terence back writing Doctor Who. How long ago since he last wrote his last script for Doctor Who? It must be... It's 25 years, 27 years, 27 years. So I thought it would be great to get Terence back, a legend of Doctor Who, to come back to write again a new production for Big Finish 27 years after the last time he wrote a script for Doctor Who. I feel almost with this, he's kind of done it in a sort of theatrical way, because it's almost two acts, isn't it? Yes. Act one is very different to act two. Yes, there's two distinct locations, and it's almost like he had a set change in the middle, Mm. as it were. Mm. Yes, definitely. Mm. And it's very much a romp in style. Has that been fun to direct? <laughs> well, it, we've, we've been stony-faced the whole day, haven't we? I've, I think Noel barely cracked a smile, did you? Know? Oh, no. Well, yeah, romp is is the operative word because there were a couple of scenes there that were just absolutely brilliant for us to perform. Um, very funny, very funny. I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> um, be- before we sign off, Jason, can you reveal who's been the biggest giggler? Uh, Claire has been really, really terrible to the point where we actually had to push her into... She had to go into the corner of her booth <laughs> so that Noel couldn't even see her in his eye line because she was setting him off. So that, I think. <laughs> terrible. You know the bit it was, Noel. Yeah, we were very professional. Very yeah. professional. <laughs> <laughs> We've actually had to slightly change Terence's script because there were certain words we actually eventually had to remove, otherwise they were never going to be able to finish the line. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> Terence. Sorry. <laughs> oh, if only we could do an outtake reel. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you.